Greetings on Monday, August the 11th of 2014. And it's approximately something like 12 past 9 in the evening. My name's David Thompson. I am here to share with you by the Spirit of God what he would say to me as an individual to those that are ordained to hear this message in the foreknowledge of God and to the body of Christ. The Word of God commands us with the words of the Apostle Peter to the early church, who said, if any man minister, let him minister as the oracles of God. And so I will seek to minister in such a way that the Spirit of God speaks through me to you. My prayer, my earnest prayer, is that you, through this message, are brought to revelation and awakening by the Spirit of God into relationship with Him, into a place of blessing, of understanding. I do not know what I'm going to share in my endeavor to speak as the oracles of God. I cast lots on the scripture and trust God to speak to me through that passage. I'm not gonna get into all of that. There's many scriptures both in the Old and New Testament that clarify that the casting of the lots is of the Lord. The casting of the lot and the whole disposing thereof is the Lord, is of the Lord, it says, in the last verse of, I believe, Proverbs 16. For example, this was a practice that has been used from the very beginning of time till now by the people of God. And no doubt for every particle of existence, God's spirit is attached to it, for he is the creator of it. And they've also found that out in particle physics with the discovery of the God particle behind all particles of existence. So I want to share with you just the passage of scripture that I received today. And there has been some major changes in my sharing on this website and on the internet, such as on YouTube. I now have set up daily podcasts that are mostly done as just strict audio podcasts and I am doing messages almost every day of the week whereas before I was just doing a few video messages a month now I might do one or two video messages as I sense the Spirit of God telling me today to do a video message which involves a lot more time and effort as far as setup and processing but you now have the blessing of hearing almost every day of the week a message that I've received and that I will seek to minister to you as the oracles of God. By that I mean that I will seek to speak in the spirit of God, which is in the spirit of prophecy. As the word of God says in Revelations chapter 19, it's the angel standing before John and John falls down in awe and worship before the angel and the angel forbids him. And he said, he says, see thou do it not for I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. 
Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It is out of a true heart of worship that is in spirit and in truth, out of communion with God that comes forth the response of God's spirit within our being to come forth as a shaft of light or a two-edged sword of light to touch the inner depths of other people's lives. And so I seek this day to minister as the oracle's God. And there is a sense of helplessness because I really don't know from just having a brief time on Song of Solomon chapter 6 what is going to come forth out of this. But I believe God is wanting to say something to the body of Christ. And so I will begin reading the Song of Solomon chapter 6, which is, for those that are not knowledgeable, a love description between a bride and her bridegroom in very beautiful poetic language, but has in that pictures and symbolisms of our relationship with God as the corporate bride of Christ and individually those that have come into intimacy with God. It is an exceptionally hot day today. So, beginning to read, Whither is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women? Whither is thy beloved turned aside, that we may seek him with thee? My beloved is gone down into his garden, to the beds of spices to feed in the gardens and to gather lilies. My beloved has gone down into his garden. Okay, I just read that. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feedeth among the lilies. Thou art beautiful, O my love, as Tizra, comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. Turn away thine eyes from me, for they have overcome me. Thy hair is as the flock of goats that appear from Gilead. Thy teeth are as the flock of sheep which go up from the washing, whereof every one beareth twins. And there is not one barren among them. As a piece of a pomegranate are thy temples within thy lots. There are threescore queens and fourscore concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my undefiled, is but one. She is the only one of her mother. She is the choice one of her that bear her. The daughters saw her and blessed her. Yea, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. Who is she that looketh forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners? I went down into the garden of nuts to see the fruits of the valley 
and to see whither the the vine flourished and the pomegranates budded. Or ever I was aware, my soul made me like the chariots of a minadeb. Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon thee. What will we see in the Shulamite? As it were, the company of two armies. Father, I just thank you for your presence. And I thank you for what you're going to do in showing forth the glorious purposes that you have for this world in your corporate bride in union with you. Verse 1 says, Whither is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women? Whither is thy beloved turned aside that we may seek him with thee? There is first of all the recognition that the beloved of the bridegroom, in this case, of course, it's King Solomon with his woman that is the one he loves more than any other woman, which speaks of God as the head over his corporate body, his bride, the church that is redeemed from every kindred and tribe and tongue and nation, from every background of such great diversity that in the natural would never get along, but are bonded out of the love of God into a glorious unity. But they note in verse 1 that she is the fairest among women. We are living in a time when God is creating or allowing man to go his own way in his rebellion against God with deceptive beliefs, deceptive idolatrous belief systems and various religious hierarchies. And we are seeing now more than ever before in the world that it is getting very dark. As we see people believing things that are inspired from hell itself, that are completely destructive, causing them to kill innocent, righteous people, Christians and others of others' faiths that have an upright life. And we see, if you haven't seen it, all the people that even today they announced in many of the major news networks like Fox News, that over 500 people were buried alive. That they've been beheading children and putting the heads of many of the Christians and others on fence posts around the city. This is absolutely evil. And the world is getting darker and darker. And there's a scripture in Isaiah that says, in Isaiah chapter 60, it goes like this. It says... Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. 
And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and the kings to the brightness of thy rising. And I won't go on to minister much more than that. Maybe the next verse is important. Lift up thine eyes round about and see all they gather themselves together. They come to thee. Thy son shall come from far, and thy daughters shall be nursed at thy side. Then thou shalt see and flow together, and thine heart shall fear and be enlarged, because of the abundance of the seas shall be converted unto thee, and the forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. Just going to go back to my place in Song of Solomon 6. We are living in a time when there is this gross darkness that is increasing in the world. And there is a polarization between those that are evidently the sons and daughters of light and those that are of darkness. It is becoming more and more clear that there is a maturing, like Christ said, of the wheat and the tares. People no longer are ashamed of the evil, but they are flaunting their evil in the face of God. Well, God allows people to choose their own beliefs. He didn't create his creation as robots because the very essence of who God is is love. It says in 1 John more than once, God is love. And love of its very essence is totally self-originating and free in God that love Having that quality is always choosing the highest lasting good over any more immediate fulfillment and was ultimately manifested in such love that he condescended in the full expression of himself into this time and space realm in Jesus Christ, who is the very and only full expression of God into the time and space realm. It is the aspect of God that governs in the time and space realm. And Jesus Christ humbled himself more than you, a mere creature, and suffered more than you, a mere creature, so that you could be reconciled to God, so that you could repent and receive forgiveness of sins, and the assurance of forgiveness. That is the love that God has. It is such an incredibly powerful love. And in this passage of Scripture, what we're seeing is the description of those that are coming in to this reconciliation with God or recognizing God for who He is and corporately are beginning to shine like it described in the chapter I read in Isaiah 60. Arise and shine, for thy light is come, for gross darkness shall cover the earth. So God is allowing people with their own choices in rebellion against God to go their own way, and it is creating a very, very dark scene. But the darker the scene, the more glorious the light that will shine in contrast to it and totally conquer the darkness in the process. 
in this passage of Scripture. These people are attracted to a glory that they are seeing in the people of God that's starting to shine in the midst of this great suffering. When people's identity is not in a relationship with the very essence of what love is. And I want to describe that now because this passage is talking about love all the way through, a love relationship with God. But it's also bringing out what that love is. There are many people that have an idolatrous image of God that they worship in their hearts, whether they worship outwardly an idol or not. The Bible says God is love, but love has integrity. Love is pure. Genuine love is always choosing the highest lasting good out of its own free volition, totally self-originating. In fact, it is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed that is contrary to choosing the highest lasting good. This is the essence of the being of God. Science and everything points towards an ultimate life source. They, they, they know that more than ever before. There's the first and the second laws of thermodynamics. The first law says that everything left on its own always tends in the direction of disorder onto greater and greater chaos until there's total destruction or randomness. And the second law says that nothing can be uh, ultimately destroyed. That matter just changes different forms. In other words, it's basically saying that something always existed without a beginning. And of course, those two laws reveal an amazing contradiction because it should mean that in the infinite past, everything should have been reduced to complete chaos. And here we are as a complete contradiction to the two laws that are observed in all the known universe. We are living in a realm that is highly ordered with great complexity. In fact, particle physics, I'm writing a book in which I go into it a bit, and I can't talk too much on this here, but to say that the 16 or $10 billion, there's been different amounts attributed to this project that took 16 years, and that's the Hadron Collider in Geneva, Switzerland, 25 kilometers of circular tunnel firing Objects, small little protons at the speed of almost very close to the speed of light that are colliding. And when they collide, there's billions of explosions a second. None of those billions of explosions a second, there is about a million that are analyzed in the sophisticated cameras. And these explosions are taking place in, cha in large chambers that 
have a gravitational pull a thousand times, thousands of times greater than the, the gravitational force on the Earth, and in temperatures colder than the coldest places in outer space, minus 273 Celsius. And there's computer systems around the world receiving and analyzing about a million of these a second. What are they looking for? They, the whole main reason they set this project up, it involves something like 60,000 scientists, 10 to $16 billion in cost over a period of 16 years, was to find the God particle because they could not figure out why everything had mass. Well, now they know from particle physics and all the analysis and mathematical analysis, they discovered the God particle in July of 2012. And that it is the force behind all the things that exist. They know that everything that exists is just clusters of energy that are arranged in certain order. Well, what is holding all of those clusters of energy together in their order? It's what they discovered behind those clusters of energy, the God particle, or also it's called the Higgs boson. And I'm not here to go into that. But there's incredible science. There's, even before this, this collider was built, there are many other colliders doing this that were far smaller. And they already concluded from the analysis mathematically that there were about 10, possibly more, dimensions of existence that were just as real as this physical realm, and in many cases, probably far more real than this physical realm. We're in channel, let's say, 21. Well, that doesn't mean there isn't another channel called channel 27. Are you aware of it? No, because it's in a totally different frequency. But it's very real. Just as real as this physical realm, more real. People that die say that when they die, they are in this other dimension, and that it is more real than the physical realm. Far more real. And I'm not here to go into that. You can go to my site at ultimatemeaning.com. Seems like I got sidetracked from the theme of the passage, but not really. What I am describing, and what brought me to describe all of this, was my desire to communicate to you the very essence of who God is, and that science is pointing towards an ultimate life source, an ultimate reality. The law of thermodynamics, the particle physics, showing the multifaceted dimensions of existence and that there is this force behind it, which they call the God particle, which I can declare is an ultimate source of reality. And what can possibly be an ultimate source of reality in life? Well, if you just look up the meaning of the word truth in various dictionaries, it basically defines it as that which is real. When you look up the meaning of the word real, it is basically defined by various dictionaries as that which is immovable, everlasting, and unchangeable. What quality can possibly be that way? The only quality that can be that way is an ultimate perfection of love, because a love that has an integrity that is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed that is contrary to it is holiness. It is the defensive aspect of the love of God. And only such a quality could possibly contain unlimited life and unlimited power without being corrupted by it, 
and as such would be indicative that it is the very source thereof. And it is this that is the very essence of all life. It is love. God is love. He's not some vague life source. If we have personality, we are only a reflection of this creation. How much more would God be an ultimate personality? An ultimate source of intelligence and perfection. And nothing is more intelligent that has a quality of being that is able to continually choose the highest lasting good over any more immediate choice of gratification and be yet in a state of total completeness and fulfillment. Only God can be that way. But that's only one aspect of God, and I like to describe it this way for sake of illustration, because we see in modern science today so many things that are described in negatives and positive. In fact, the whole of nature is filled with negatives and positives. I'm describing to you this black background, which is the consequence of man's free choice, because God, being love, creates beings that are self-originating, that are free, that have the capacity to love. But when you create beings that have that capacity, there is also the capacity to make choices that are contrary to love. But God's purpose is to bring, ultimately, people of their own free volition into totally, total harmony with his ultimate perfection of love, with who he is, and be married corporately to him as the bride. God, the other aspect, so this holiness of God, this defensive aspect, this integrity of love, is the foundation. You can look at it as a plus symbol. You've got the negative symbol, the ultimate negative of the universe, going this way as a symbol, as a negative. And then out of that is the foundation for creativity to go on in greater and greater enlargement and beauty without end. And that is the essence of who God is. His creativity is ever enlarging, ever growing. But it is only possible on the foundation of holiness, of love that has absolute integrity, that will not allow the slightest iota of corruption, that will not condone that which is slightly in the, in the slightest corrupt. That is why we have many examples in the Old Testament recordings of the God's presence coming down to Mount Sinai and other places and him breaking out as a devouring fire and devouring various ones that were in rebellion against him or getting too close to him because he cannot condone the slightest that is contrary to his love. He is a blazing fire. In fact, the word of God says our God is a consuming fire, a consuming fire of such love that is so pure, so pure. And this love has its foundation in holiness, this ultimate negative, so to speak. And it is out of that foundation that comes the positive, which is like the symbol of the cross. So out of that foundation comes forth what can go forth in resurrection, so to speak, or in creativity. And that is because God's love 
out of such holiness is so great that he can actually become a perfect atoning sacrifice for those who truly repent and receive his judgment that he absorbed upon himself of all creation. Only God could absorb judgment upon himself for all creation. Because only God could be a perfect substitutionary sacrifice without sin. And that is what Christ did. It says he was in all points tempted as we are and yet without sin. And he, as it were, took the first man, Adam, that sinned. And through his obedience and union with God, for he is God, carried that first man, Adam, in obedience right on to the death of the cross and nailed that Adam onto the cross and rose up in victory and conquered death, absorbing judgment upon himself. And his union as God never was broken. There is only one God. There's not three gods. There's one God. But God in government governs beyond the time and space realm as the Father, which speaks of origination and of seeing the end from the beginning. That is the aspect of God's government and personage beyond time and space. And he governs within his creation by expressing himself into the time and space realm and that's what the word son means. It means expression. It is the full expression of the Father into the time and space realm, governing in the time and space realm. And it is not possible to govern without being a personage in time and space and without being a personage beyond time and space and filling all existence with an omnipresence by the Spirit of God. Those three dimensions are the ultimate dimensions of existence and God governs them in three personages that are one God. They're just simply, that's the best and simplest way to explain it. I'm not here to get carried away in that except to give an understanding that within this triunity there is a love relationship of ultimate oneness and when, this, when God absorbed judgment upon himself and Jesus Christ on the cross, he never lost union with the Father. He always trusted in the Father. It says in Romans 1.4 that but he was raised from the dead by the spirit of holiness. His spirit was in a state like this hand of selfless trust in union with the Father. Even when he was receiving and absorbing and tasting death, death for all creation and the judgment of God. So because of that, because his union could not be broken, he, was he rose from the dead and conquered death. And so we have, out of the holiness of God, the transcendence in mercy, the mercy to provide to creation destiny and purpose because of the power to provide forgiveness, which only resides in God. It is only in God that there is forgiveness because only he has the moral capacity to be a perfect atoning sacrifice 
and conquer death. And that's what he did in the center of history in his one and only full expression or son, Jesus Christ. So that you can be reconciled to God. And so the other aspect of this love of God is that it is transcendent in mercy and out of that grace comes. Or you could use even the word mercy and grace synonymously depending on whether you know you go with the description of the way the original word is in the Old Testament as opposed to the New. In the Old Testament, the word mercy contains the understanding of grace. In the New Testament, mercy is the aspect of God being willing to forgive, and grace is the favor that goes even beyond the forgiveness to bless because of first receiving the mercy of God. But what I'm wanting to share here is this relationship in the Song of Solomon, on the love of God. And so I built a foundation here in order to describe what is being played out here, in, or not played out, what is being brought forth here in this chapter. This is God's plan. God is the very source and foundation for all existence. And because his mercy is so great that it is transcended out of his holiness with the power to provide forgiveness, we see that there is purpose and destiny in creation even in the midst of such darkness that is being seen because of the destructibility in man's heart in rebellion against God. This destructibility originated way back at the very beginning. And I'm not here to go into depth to describe the rebellion of Lucifer. That was where it first started, where he went against the direct stream of God's blessing. He was one of the most powerful angels and started to think that with all his power and glory, he could be equal with God. The moment he began to think that way, he was not looking at God as ultimately trustworthy or as ultimately holy. He lost his perception. The fear of God is so important. The Word of God commands us to fear Him. And it says in Isaiah 33, around verse 6, concerning the Messiah, the Son of God, that the fear of the Lord is his treasure. In the triunity of God, the Son is always admiring the integrity of the Father in government that is so pure in his love and his creativity that he's filled with thankfulness and attraction unto it. And he says to the Father, Father, I love you so much that I want to express my love to you by going into a great condescension and suffering and a death to bring forth a corporate bride unto you, Father. And the Father says to the Son, I love you so much and I see the beauty in you, my Son, of your glory and of your holiness and your purity that I want you to be, willing, to, to be able to go and I'm willing to let you go and suffer so that you can have a corporate bride that you can inherit with me. That we will reign in the universe with this bride. And it will go on in greater and greater enlargement 
forever and ever without end in creativity. And it will conquer the principles of corruption and death and of rebellion and free will beings. And it will display to the universe this corporate bride, which is a display of the ultimate wisdom and glory of God that he would create such a beautiful mosaic of unity from such diverse backgrounds that they will never have an excuse again to rebel against God and they will be caused to fear me, to choose to see me for who I am and my holiness and be in utter awe of me and not fall into this trap of pride and deception again as some of the angels did. Of course, the same principle happened in Adam and Eve. But in Adam and Eve, it wasn't a direct rebellion against the presence of God. In my book, I go into depth about all of these things. Eventually, it'll be done. But what I am sharing here is the end time message that God has for this world to be reconciled to Jesus Christ and to enter in to being part of the light in the midst of this darkness that is increasing. Where your heart is, there is your treasure. So if when you see the darkness in this world getting greater and greater, and your identity and your life is simply in living for material things or some deceptive belief system, when those things begin to crumble around you, you will become filled with darkness and you will become desperate to want to join a movement that will hate and hurt people. Whether it's extreme on the end of Nazism or communism or some religious system that is monotheistic, that is destructive. Where did this destructive of belief systems originate? Well, it originated way back then. Do you see, the moment Lucifer perceived God as less, there was a black hole that formed in his being that he couldn't satisfy, that he couldn't fill. It was like a black hole in outer space. It had a destructive quality in it that would pull everything into itself and destroy everything around it. And it is that destructibility that is in beliefs that fail to perceive God in his ultimate perfection of love. In other words, they fail to genuinely fear God. That's what happened to Lucifer. He failed to fear God. When you fear God, you are in awe of him and you are brought to a place of humility where there's no place for pride. You're brought to a place of honesty that brings you to a place of humility where there's no place for that destructive principle of pride, of self-worship that is in rebellion against God. What happened to Cain? Cain was bitter at the consequences of the holiness of God that resulted in the curse, that resulted in thorns and all kinds of hardship. And so he began to withdraw from God and to look at God as an enigma. And he turned and became, he began to be, have a perception of God as just some kind of holiness that was demanding and controlling and lost sight of the goodness of God that was behind the holiness of God. Without the holiness of God, you do not have what is ultimately trustworthy that can bring mercy, that can bring forgiveness. And so you have a perception of a demanding, dictatorial God that cannot assure and provide destiny to creation and to your life personally. This is not the true God. 
This is the counterfeit God that is in fact the devil. That comes in the form of religiosity and also in the form of immorality. In the form of religiosity, he can be demanding and ritualistic and controlling. In the form of immorality, he's a God that supposedly is bringing unity to everyone and, and will show love to everyone, but the love has no integrity, no holiness. It condones corruption and destructibility in a counterfeit unity that is making man the center of all things, which he is not. And it should be obvious to man that he is not the center of this universe or of this creation. How dare he think he is? with false belief systems of humanism and so on. In this passage of scripture, I will go on. And it says here in the next verse, my beloved has gone down into his garden to the beds of spices to feed in the gardens and to gather lilies. This is speaking of God, the bridegroom, he delights to go to the garden where there's spices and where there's lilies. Lilies speak of purity. They speak of people that have a pure heart before God, that worship him in spirit and in truth. This speaks of God's people that are like a garden that is bringing beautiful scents and perfumes before him in worship. There's a verse in the scripture that goes like this, and it's God speaking. He says, as truly as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of God. And it may be in the same context that there's another verse that says, and praise will spring up before me as the buds of a garden throughout all the earth. Do you know that there is a description of God's plan for the consequences of rebellion against his holiness that people choose, that he uses only to bring forth his ultimate purpose of a corporate bride through that dark background. But for example, in Isaiah 24, it describes, and it does in many other parts of the scripture, how God will use a massive earthquake to bring forth his kingdom. And there are other verses that say things like this that he will shake all things that are shakeable, that what is unshakable might remain. And that is the process, generally speaking, that is going on. Man with his counterfeit belief systems, which basically have the root in Cain, and an immorality on the one hand, and on the other hand, and legalistic, demanding religious systems that are, where people become control freaks, so to speak. And Isaiah 24 describes this massive earthquake that will cause the cities of the nations to fall. It happens when man's systems are finally judged. And briefly, I will explain what is going to be the basic pattern that will happen now in this near future. If you go to my website at loverealize.com, you will discover that I have some prophets on there that are foretelling what is going to happen to the United States and other parts of the world. These are men of God that have laid their lives down. For example, there's one man there. His name is um, Henry Gruber. 
He's literally, literally, God leads him to pray over cities and to walk around cities. He's gone right in front of terrorists that told him they were going to kill him. And God delivers him from them. Told him that they're going to behead him. He's not afraid. He goes anywhere. And he's done amazing things. And he's a prophet of God and he's foretold. Some of the things are going to happen to the United States. You can check it out on my website. But basically what I want to point out here, there's this chapter that describes a destruction that's going to happen in the world. And it's mainly describing this earthquake, and I'm not going to go into reading the chapter for time. It's describing a destruction of the world system. It's also described in Revelations chapter 14. And we'll briefly turn to Revelations chapter 14 and look at that. This is Revelations chapter 14. And there's a pattern that is shown in Revelations 14 of the way events will, will unfold. And it starts by describing three angels, starting in verse 6. And it says, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth. And the sea. And the fountains of waters. I am preaching this everlasting gospel that is described here along with others. About fearing God. God's called me to write a book on the fear of God. And much of what I preach on, the root of it is on choosing to fear God. And I preach often on also what can be called the everlasting gospel. Because I describe how this gospel has been preached from the time of Adam and Eve till now. That there is one God and that he has provided an assured way of forgiveness. And that that is through the full expression of himself in his mercy. And when you perceive God as the Father, as many did in the Old Testament, then, as Christ said, whoever is taught and learned of the Father comes unto the Son. Because when you really see God for who he is in his holiness, it brings you to the recognition of the greatness of his mercy. Because you're not recognizing God as some dictator. You're seeing the goodness of God that's behind the holiness of God that allows for him to bring mercy and creativity. And so you recognize that only God can be a perfect atoning sacrifice. And so you are brought in that to the recognition that God therefore must come into this world and so you are drawn onto God the full expression of God into the time and space realm which is the same one true God which is Jesus Christ and so this is the everlasting gospel and after that in verse 7 the next thing that happens is It says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. That is talking about the destructions, destruction of the world systems that were once pure like a virgin, but became corrupted like a whore, so that they embrace immoral teachings that bring the destruction of the family unit. They embrace those things that are or immoral and flaunt their face and blasphemy before God with their immorality. 
and God will judge it with fire. Sorry, if you see what Henry Groover has prophesied in other prophets, there's coming a time when there will be an atomic attack, probably from Russia and China, not only on the United States, but on many other parts of the world. And I'm sorry, but God's not going to stand for the immorality. He's going to judge it. I pray it doesn't happen. I pray that there's a repentance so that the judgment is greatly minimized. But until the churches in North America repent of idleness, the sin of Sodom was pride and idleness and abundance of bread. People call themselves Christian and they spend hours watching sports. They don't spend time in prayer. They're caught up with the gods of amusement. They're caught up with the gods of idleness instead of using their creativity to help others and to be allowing the God's love to go through them and touching the lives of others. They're not redeeming the time. The word of God says that we're to redeem the time because the days are evil. And if North America, if Canada, if the United States and other parts of the free world want to see God's mercy brought to their land to heal their land and to stay the judgment that is coming and minimize it greatly, then repent of these idolatries and turn back to God in your churches. Oh, you hardly, hardly have anyone in your prayer meeting. Well, then what you need to do is make the church service a prayer meeting and humble yourselves and get on your face before God and repent of idleness, repent of the gods of amusement. Repent of control where you don't allow the members in the body to share their gifts one with another out of worship and to edify one another as it was in the early church. Remember the tendency of control that was even in the hierarchy around Moses where there were those that were just caught up with loving God and worshiping God and the spirit of prophecy came on them. And they said, there's people prophesying in the camp, Moses. Tell them to shut up. And what did Moses say? No. I'm not going to tell them to shut up. I wish all of Israel would become like them. It is time that we allow people in the churches to humble themselves, to pray, to seek God, to be facilitated in using their gifts. I am getting way off as far as on going into any significant exposition on um, this passage in Song of Solomon 6. But I'll get back to it. And we'll do a little bit of it. So we are reading in verse 2, how God delights in those with a pure heart. He delights to come among those people in the body of Christ that are like lilies, whose hearts are pure. Who shall ascend into the hill of God? He that has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul unto vanity. And those vanities, I've just mentioned some of them. In Jonah, it says, they that observe lying to vanities forsake their own mercy. Let us be those that learn the deception of that subtle vortex of the lust of the flesh, of the pride that was in Lucifer and others and of other great men of God that fell that were even godly and be in the fear of God so that we never allow our focus to be on a vortex that draws us in a direction of emptiness and meaninglessness and destruction in our lives. But let us learn rather to know that our completeness comes out of perceiving who God is through spending time in prayer and in worship and in his word. 
And what is that? It is a choice to see him in the perfection of his pure love of holiness. It is a choice to delight in the holiness of God. It says in the word of God, give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness because it is in his holiness that there is the containment of ultimate everlasting goodness, of unlimited life and power that is not destructive but is totally fulfilling. And in this passage of scripture, it says in verse 3, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Again, it says he feedeth among the lily. God feeds on those whose hearts delight in his purity because as you delight in the purity of who God is, you are being purified. King. And it's out of holiness that comes wholeness. No emptiness. A reality inside of you that is so satisfying that nothing in this world, no matter how pleasurable it is, can compare to. Because it is satisfying the very essence for which you are created, which is to worship God, to have intimacy and communion with God. So God is calling his people to enter in to a place where they delight in the holiness of God because out of that comes wholeness. And it is out of wholeness that comes the beauty or the revelation of who God is to enter into an even greater relationship with him. That's why King David said, one thing have I desired of the Lord and that will I seek after. To behold the beauty of the Lord all the days of my life and inquire in his temple. And there's a deep turning in our hearts which can only happen as we learn to be in humility and stillness before God and then out of that come forth in a genuine revelation of who he is and out of that come forth an adulation of the beauty of what we're seeing and praise unto God. Then we truly enter into a place of relationship and of intimacy with God. In verse 4, it says, Thou art beautiful, O my love, as Tisra, comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. And yes, when we perceive God in his glory and his holiness, there is a terribleness about it because God is a God of judgment and rightly so because his love is so pure that it will not tolerate that which would be destructive. And we should delight even in that awesomeness, even though it may cause us to shrink back and tremble at times, let us learn to lay ourselves down before God and to delight in the beauty of his holiness, even when it is terrible as an army with banners. And then it says in verse 5, Turn away thine eyes from me, for they have overcome me. And when we see the beauty of the eyes of God's love as a blazing fire of love that is so pure, yes, it's holy, it's a devouring fire against sin. But when we begin to see the beauty of his love towards us, how great his love is towards us that he would die on the cross and suffer more and humble himself more than us mere creatures, what can we do but not be overwhelmed and not be able to look at it. The holiness is so great that it will make everything of corruption in you die, and so it's hardly impossible to look at such a holiness 
In fact, I had one vision in my life in 1975, the only open vision I've had. And in it, I saw the holiness of God. And I could not look at it because as I was, corruption in me was becoming so strong that I felt like I was physically dying if I kept looking at the holiness of God. And yet in his eyes, there was such love. I tried to laugh back or smile back, but there was no smile but in his eyes I saw the look of a captain that was stern, but he was filled with incredible love. It doesn't mean there isn't a place for joy and liberty. It means, though, that first there is the recognition of his holiness and of being overcome by such purity of love that we may be brought to the place of a true liberty that comes out of humility instead of a counterfeit liberal liberty that is filled with leaven. Thy hair is as the flock of goats that appear from Gilead. Again, this is speaking of God, the purity of his being, going back for the eternities of the past, He's described as the ancient of days in Daniel 9. He is described in Revelations chapter 1 as having hair that is white as wool. Basically, you may as well say as white as snow. Representing purity throughout the ages of time. Gray hair represents wisdom, but it represents age and wisdom, but purity as well. And so we perceive God, as the Father, as the Ancient of the Days. And it says in verse 6, Thy teeth are as the flock of sheep which go up from the washing, whereof every one beareth twins, and there is not one barren among them. And what I see in this is as you see the teeth of God in this representation, the teeth Speak of purity. God is receiving from the Son the total purity of what is in the Son. The Son is receiving from the Father, digesting the total purity of the expressions of the Word coming through the Father. And the Son is receiving from total purity the expressions of the Word coming from the Father. And it is so pure that it bears nothing less than total abundance and fruitfulness. And likewise, he wants us to have within the mouth of our heart, so to speak, teeth that are so pure, that delight in the purity of God, that delight to receive his word, even if it takes seven times or more for us to be refined through trials, we are willing to take the sweetness of his word and not stop there, but to let it be incarnated into our life in the bitterness of trials, that we might come through with the washing of the word as well, which speaks of the presence and the spirit of God exposing what is not of God so that we come under conviction and repent and are cleansed through the blood of Christ and purified through trials and various things. But we have teeth that are hungry to receive the word of God because our receptivity has a view to purity it says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
And the way we taste and see that the Lord is good is when we choose to receive the purity of who God is in the expression of his word, also which is his son, and what is given to us in the written word of God, the Bible. As a piece of a pomegranate are thy temples within thy locks. And again, we see that in the pomegranate, there is great intricacy, there is great color, and there is great, and so also within God, there is great creativity of thought way beyond anything we can comprehend. And we should always be delighting in recognizing that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his thoughts higher than our thoughts, and his ways than our ways, delighting in the beauty of his plan that is within his being and his intelligence that is far greater than ours. There are threescore queens and fourscore concubines and virgins without number. And this is speaking of the hosts that gather around God to worship him, for he is the Lord of hosts. It is also speaking of those that God will draw from the nations unto himself to be part of that corporate bride when they see the first fruits of that bride coming forth through the darkness of great tribulation as we see it beginning to happen now in the world. And I didn't finish telling you after there's the destruction of the world system, that the next angel in Revelations chapter 14, which is the third one, is talking about the Antichrist. So we see that the Antichrist system is set up. And this Antichrist system is then shown to be destroyed in Revelations chapter 19. No doubt also by an earthquake, because it seems to me that this Babylonian system is destroyed first by atomic warfare or atomic attack. And then there is this, the setting up of the Antichrist system. And then there is another Babylon under the Antichrist that is rebuilt. And then that system is destroyed by the earthquake that is described in such places as Isaiah 24 and other places such as Revelations chapter 16, which says there, and I will probably best turn to it quickly to just give you that. Revelations chapter 16. Revelations chapter 16. And it says this in verse 18, the last half of 18 and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And it goes on to describe that every island fled away and the mountains were not found, and I won't go on. So I personally tend to see in Revelations that the first Babylon is destroyed by fire and the Babylon on the Antichrist is destroyed by a powerful earthquake. It's not a dogmatism. 
it's possibly very likely the way it, will, way it is. And we go on here, and it says in verse 9, My dove, my undefiled, is but one. She is the only one of her mother. She is the choice one of her that bear her. The daughters saw her and blessed her. Yea, the queens and the concubines, they praised her. Oh, there's so much in this passage that I've been preaching for so long. This is speaking of someone that is very pure before God and is showing that even she was, these are the people of God that were even predestinated to enter into this, not because of some overruling of God, no. Because of their own free will, they, God knew that God foreknows even what we will choose that is totally self-originating from ourselves and of our own free will. And God already foreknew that they would choose to follow him. And so their paths had little indicators here and there that God's hand is in their life, was in their life that brought them to the place of conversion and of reconciliation to himself. And even if you as an individual don't perceive that, God is not willing, it says in his word, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And maybe you will notice it and be aware of it then after your conversion. In verse 10, it says, Who is she that looketh forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners? So now we see that the nature that, was, that is in God is imbued into his bride. And she also has this nature of holiness that is so pure, so fair, clear as the sun, terrible as a banner with armies. There is a hate for sin. There's a verse in the scripture that says in Hebrews, thou, I think it's Hebrews 1, thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. This is, this is speaking of Christ, the Messiah. It is his intense hate for what is contrary to love and his intense love for what is Love, which is righteousness, so a hate for unrighteousness, a love for righteousness, that causes the presence of God to be so strong in the Messiah. Of course, being the Messiah, he is God. But likewise, the more we go through trials, the more we are formed into an image that sees things as God sees them, that feels things as God feels them, so that we hate that which is destructive, we hate that which is contrary to love, and we love that which is in conformity to love. And so that allows a powerful imbuing of his presence and of his holiness in us so that we begin to have a sort of light come out of our voice that speaks with hate towards what God hates and love towards what God loves, that executes judgment where he calls us to do it, not by physical battle, but by spiritual pronunciations that execute the authority of God upon evil to bring it under subjection, which it will come. Then it says in verse 11, I went down into the garden of nuts to see the fruits of the valley and to see whether the vine flourished and the pomegranates budded. This is probably speaking 
of the bridegroom again. Wherever I was, no, this is speaking of the bride, pardon me. And then, so this is what God is calling us as his people to do, to be occupied in the garden, which is the place of laboring to bring forth fruit unto him in the lives of others. And so we're checking the fruits that are in the valley that God has placed us in to labor and to see whether they are flourishing and whether the pomegranates are budding. We're being diligent to, to bring people's lives forth as a beautiful, fruitful lily or a, or a spice unto God. And as we're occupied with laboring in that way, what happens? Wherever I was aware, my soul made me like the chariots of Aminadab. Now, what does Aminadab mean first? I looked up the meaning of this word. It means my people are willing. And actually, in the Hebrew, it means people as a congregated unit, collectively. And if you go to the symbolic um, letters for the Hebrew, which are back at 2000 BC and earlier and up to 1500 BC, the first letter is the picture of an eye and the second is the picture of water that is smooth. And what do we see in this? Well, we see that peop- it, is peop- it is a picture of looking towards God corporately as a bride And water has the quality of conformity to the nature of God. It is a consistent quality. If you cause wind to blow or go against it, speaking of rebellion, let's say, then it becomes a powerful wave of judgment, so to speak. And yet it can be so even that it is the basis for proper measurement and judgment. It's totally even. It is reflective. It reflects. And it has life within it. And so God's people are to be looking unto God corporately, and having the qualities of God's being which are like unto the water, that have that evenness and that beauty and that transparency that can receive light and that can give life because water has a quality of giving life. So it's saying here, or ever I was aware my soul made me like the chariots of Amenabeth. This is a picture of people coming into a relationship with God where they are translated like Enoch was translated with God or like Elijah went up in a chariot of fire. It is the people that are coming in to such a unity of purity with God and one another that they will experience the experience of rapture, of being seated in heavenly places in Christ, even to the point that they may literally be taken up to heaven. And there's been many examples of people that have been taken up. I haven't had it happen yet. I believe God may let it happen because I heard him say certain things to me. But we'll see. I'm hungry to see the glory of God because I want to love God and be greater in awe of who he is. But God, the people that are occupied with laboring for the meat that endures unto eternal life instead of being caught up with the busyness of this life and learn to trust him to meet their needs are going to be a corporate people that reflect the glory of God to the point that they will walk in a relationship with God where they will be caught up to be with their bridegroom in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then in the last verse, this is what we read. 
Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon thee. What will ye see in the Shulamite? As it were, the company of two armies. Now the word Shulamite means the perfect, the peaceful. It means peaceful. It has the article always prefix, making it a pet name in a way. But this is a love relationship here. It means complete. In the original Hebrew symbolic language, there are three letters. The first is of teeth put together. The next is of a shepherd's staff that is hooked to hook animals and so on. And the last is that of water, which speaks of life source, of consistency of being. And so there is a quality in the heart of those that are the Shulamites, of knowing a completeness and a peace that passes all the things of this world, no matter how ugly and evil they are around them. There is a union with God. And this union conquers every circumstance. It is a union where one can be in the midst of great, terrible circumstances and know a peace in their inner being in the midst of it. And these teeth speak of guarding our heart with all diligence to keep in the path of peace, to let the peace of God rule in our heart and the staff of hooking, hooking into who God is, which is this picture of the water, which is the third letter, which reflects, is a receptivity to light when it's still in submission to God and not allowing the winds of its own understanding and false doctrines to blow on it and cause the waves to bring dirt up. No, it is a quality that reflects light and is still and beautiful to drink from because it has learned to guard its heart with all diligence like the teeth and to hook into God by choosing to fear God and to come into the place of holiness where we learn to be in awe before God and out of that. Humility come forth in pure praise and adulation unto God. And so it's saying in this last verse, return, return, O Shulamite, return. It's the peoples of the world. They want to know why there's such a glory and such a brightness when they're having such darkness around them. And they're asking for these people to return. We want to know your God. What will we see in the Shulamite as it were the company of two armies? And so the mystery is what is causing this glory in the Shulamite, the one that knows completeness, the one that knows peace. What is causing this glory is that the Shulamite has received the holiness of God, which is the first army. And out of that has received the mercy of God, which is the second army and the grace of God, which is the favor of God that issues out of the mercy of God in the way it's described in the New Testament. Those are the two armies it's speaking about. As it were, the company of two armies. These two armies are the hate for sin, the hate for what is contrary to love, and the delight in the holiness of God that is a consuming fire of judgment against all instead of being rebelling and blaming God for all the suffering in the world, 
There's a delight in the holiness of God and a recognition that he is not the source of it. That is simply the fact that they have been left unto themselves by cutting themselves off from God by rebellion, a destructive principle. And out of that, such incredible creativity accumulated in the love of God revealed on the cross around which we will continually worship God and say worthy is the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world as it describes this worship in the book of Revelations. It is the very life source of the universe beyond comprehension. Those that have gone to heaven and seen God like this atheist and others that were converted, which are on my website and video, said that there was out of God's being an eye such love that he couldn't describe such power, such energy out of his mouth was coming galaxies and worlds that were continually being created out of incredible waves of love. Yes, this is the one true God. And it is eternal life to know him and it is only possible to know him by choosing to fear God, choosing to receive his holiness and recognize that you deserve hell and choosing to receive out of that his mercy to forgive you and his grace to bring his spirit into you and change your life and give you destiny and purpose in the corporate family of God forever in heaven. Thank you for listening to this message and may it be a message that echoes in your life to bear much fruit. Again, I will be sharing quite frequently on my radio podcasts. Thank you.